Well, greetings and welcome to Deep in History. Um, I'm Marcus Grodi, your co-host with Monsignor Jeffrey Steenson. And thank you for joining us on this episode of Deep in History. Hello, Monsignor, way up in Minnesota. How you doing? Oh, doing well. Thank you, Marcus. And uh, greetings to everybody that's with us. Um, I wondered if I just ask for their prayers for my, one of, one of my best early patristics teachers passed mm -hmm. away um, this past week, Father Anthony Meredith S.J., hmm. um, who taught for many years in the theology faculty at the University of Oxford and then at oh. Heathrop College in London. And he was just a, just such a beautiful man. Um, he, I remember as a, I remember he, as a student, he used to bring home this point was we were trying to understand the intricacies of Trinity and Christology. Um, when you're dealing with Christology, you have one who and two what's. When you're dealing with the Trinity, you have three who's and one what. <laughs> and in that, you could pretty much, that's the doctrine of God. Yeah, it, it's, <laughs> I wonder if, if Abbott and Costello, would have, what they would have done with that if they had studied his patristics. <laughs> Um, well, thank you, uh, Monsignor, for that, and we'll, we will keep him in prayers. And in some ways, uh, what we're doing is in honor of him, because yeah. your commitment and love for patristics, which really opened your heart to more fully to the Catholic Church, probably came from the gifts that he passed very on to you. So. Yeah, very much so. All right. We're going to—our goal today— um, everyone is, and those of you who've been following us along, thank you very much for that. Um, we're going to finish book two of um, Irenaeus's Against Heresies, and uh, I'm, I'm, I'm guaranteeing you we're going to do that today, uh, absolutely, because we, we look forward to book three uh, in so many ways. Um, but I had a question for you, Monsignor, maybe as a summary of this last section. We're going to begin in book two, chapter 31, section three on the bottom of page 191 and two of Keeble's translation. Um, but before we jump there, I wanted to ask you, when we finished last week and we ended with that long section in chapter 30, no, yeah, chapter 30, section nine, I'm pretty sure we, we finished that with last week. Long section nine. It was, it seemed to me that Irenaeus was wrapping up his argument that it really was book one and book two. Book one, it seems that he's introducing us to all the all the folk. He goes into details, then at the beginning of two, he, he, we got the whole gambit of all the Gnostics. And then he he really argues using their logic against them. And then at, at the beginning of chapter 31, 
chapter 1, uh, section 1, he says, The Valentinians thus being overthrown, the whole multitude of the heretics is cast down. So it, it, it kind of seems like he's, he's summarized all of his research, he's put it together, and then here we are. So what do you think? Is the rest of book two uh, a few afterthoughts? Some things he forgot to include in his argument? Uh, how would we characterize this section? Well, I think, I think um, uh, and I, I'm going to use this expression um, without any sense of irony, he's now putting a nail in their coffin. <laughs> this one. Because remember, they, they have this odd idea that they, they, they don't believe in the resurrection of the body. The body doesn't have any importance to them. Um, at the end of, the, of uh, chapter 31, um, section 2, where we finished yes, last time, the bottom of page 191, um, they think that resurrection from the dead means acknowledgement of the truth which they speak. <laughs> and, and his point is he's now going to look at what are they really, what are they saying about themselves, about their, their actual state? And, and so he's going to, we're going to be looking at this now a little bit, um, in the moments ahead, but he's, he's reminding them that the soul and the body were created together. Not like the Platonist idea of the soul having an, an eternal existence, um, eternally existing for, from the, not from the beginning, but before the beginning. And he's, he's basically giving the biblical doctrine of the human person here and showing how the Gnostics um, completely have missed the mark on this point. That, that's how I read it. You know, I, the, the reason this is so, I find so important um, to go back and to read a book like this is because if, if we don't know this as a backdrop to so much of what we need to believe in our faith, we don't know the battles, we don't know the reasons, then we can unintentionally pick up this stuff along the way and be blind to the fact that this, these were misunderstandings that were taken care of 1,800 years ago, uh, and then they keep resurfacing. Um, it's kind of like my, my field in my farm, you know. Every, after every winter, there's new rocks showing up. Well, where'd that come from? Well, it came up out of the ground, you know, because of the freezing and the thawing, and, and there it yeah, is. Yeah. You know, it pops up again. Uh, I never saw it before, but where'd that come from? Well, that's like this stuff popping up again. It makes me think, sadly, about the time right. we live when we see people all across America want to destroy America, and it's as if they didn't learn somehow along in their life the the, the truth about our founders and the value of our country. And if they didn't learn that, then they maybe they're two generations from knowing it because maybe their parents didn't learn it. And then so the kids don't learn it. And then now they think they're doing a good thing by just the, the importance of knowing the background to our faith. And that's why we're, we're looking at the, that line that you pointed out, which 
if you will, was the end of where we ended last week, resurrection from the dead. They think that resurrection from the dead means acknowledgement of the truth which they speak. Well, that kind of cracks me up to think about. This popped up with some of the modern Boltmann and some of the modern theologians that have a whole new spin on what the resurrection was. Right. That's a great point. And of course, the, for the Gnostics, you know, eternal life, our, eternal life is for the elect. And the only way you can be one of the elect is to join their company and believe what they believe. So if you do that, then your soul has this promise of existing forever. That's their argument there. Yeah, yeah. And the core of Christian thought, the very core is he is risen. He is risen. That's the core of what we yeah. believe. He is risen. That, that's the core is our belief in the resurrection of Christ. And as Paul says in 1 Corinthians, if that's not true, then we're, we're dummies for doing what yeah. we've done. Yeah. Uh, so, so he cuts at that. All right, let's, let's then jump into um, section three. And Monsignor, let me read this section. It's on the 191 through the top of 192. It's just that whole section. And there's a lot of good, th in the middle of this section is the phrase, forerunners of that dragon. And I wanted to give that as a subtitle of this thing, but Monsignor nixed it. He didn't want us to do that. So the, the real <laughs> subtitle of this, of this um, episode is the cup of oblivion, question mark. And we'll get to that on the bottom of page 196. So, but let me read this section, Monsignor, then I'll, I'll pass the hat over to your, for your reflection. Um, since therefore among them is impiously wrought in sight of men, error and deceit and magical fancy, but in the church, mercy and compassion and soundness and truth for men's help. And since this is done, not only without fee or reward, but with payment of our own on our part for the health of the men. And what things they need who are cured, they in their poverty very often receive of us. Surely under this head also are they convicted of being altogether alien to the divine being and the mercy of God and spiritual virtue, but filled throughout with all kinds of fraud and with the inspiration of apostates and with the working of demons and with the vain shadow of idolatry. And they are forerunners of that dragon who by this sort of imagination will cause by his tail the third part of the stars to leave their places and will cast them down to the earth, whom we ought to avoid as we would him. And by how much the greater shoe they are said to work with, so much the more shall we guard against them as having received a greater spirit of wickedness. And if one will give heed to this prophecy, he will find in it the daily course of their behavior, that their conversation is one and the same with the demons. Now, Monsignor, that's pretty strong words because he's quoting Revelation oh, yeah. there and he's connecting yeah. them and contrasting their application of their teaching to the common folk versus the application of the teaching of the church to the common folk. I, I think there's no doubt that um, 
Irenaeus saw these Gnostics as, um, whether witting or unwitting, they were instruments of, of the devil. Um, and this is as strong of a passage as you can find, I think, in the book to speak to that. The other thing, Marcus, that jumped out at me um, is that uh, he's reminding his readers that the Gnostics are shysters. You know, <laughs> they, they spend most of their money, uh, most of their time raising funds. And, and I thought, you know, that's one of the great principles of, of the Catholic Church is that you cannot charge for the sacraments. Yeah. Um, right. And even, you know, even um, if you ask for a mass to be said, um, those mass offerings are, are they're completely voluntary. Yeah. The church cannot refuse her ministry to somebody that can't afford it. And there's that, if you will, the the both and of of the statements in scripture that, you know, uh, uh, what is it? Uh, a servant is worth his wages. Yeah. I, I forget the exact yeah. phrase. So there's always been a recognition within all Christian traditions that a man who dedicates his life to service ought to be paid for his work. He, he, he shouldn't also have to be out there uh, trying to put money, put food in his refrigerator, he should be freed up to serve the church. But that's why Paul, in his missionary journeys, made the choice. He could have taken that, but he decided not to, just to not, so people didn't get confused and, and distracted by this uh, other issue. So there's there's that. But yet he... And, and you know, I could, I, I could like to say a word for many of us who are um, converts that now serve as priests in the Catholic Church, <laughs> by necessity, we are tent makers. Yeah. We, don't, we aren't paid by the church, um, at least, you know, certainly not to the level that, you know, you need to take care of a family. And so many, many of us have to um, be tent makers and find other ways to supplement um, an income. Right. Now, but that's why... The church has offered some things. Uh, you know, you, you would get something if you did a wedding or if you did a funeral or if you did a mass or if you did a variety of things. That, on the one hand, we recognize that makes sense. You've given your time, so it makes sense. It's, a, it's an offering to Christ when we offer it to the priest for it does that time. But, we've got, but a priest has to be careful not that the needle doesn't go over Right to the others, right. you, you know. So it, it seems like a wage, you know. No, and that's why he, he emphasized Irenaeus. But in the church, mercy and compassion and soundness and truth for men's help. And since this is done not only without fee and reward, but with payment of our own, on our own part, for the health of the men, and what things they need, who are cured. They in their poverty very often receive of us. You know, he can't say that unless it's true, because everybody could say, no, wait, time out here. You're right. You know, and so it's it's he wouldn't use it in his argument unless it was visibly true in the work of the church. And so we see in there a witness 
very early of the church is social ministry. That wasn't invented in the 20th century, you know, that <laughs> the church is always recognized as called to help the poor, to carry out the, the call from the Sermon on the Mount. Which brings me to the next section. So in this section, we see him alluding to the fact that it's, it's obvious to his opponents that the practice of the church is right there, living this out. Well, where does he get it from? We go to the next section, chapter 32. I'm going to read most of the first paragraph. And again, Mon, you senior, uh, I look forward to your thoughts on this. This, I, I, I really highlighted this in my book because it jumped out at me. Um, he goes, moreover, the following impious maxim of theirs concerning actions is refuted by the doctrine of the Lord. That which saith that they ought to be versed in all deeds, even ever so bad ones. But with him, not only the adulterer is cast out, but even he who wishes to be such. And not only will the slayer be guilty of murder unto damnation, but he also who is angry with his brother without a cause. He bade, bade men not only not hate, but even love their enemies. He forbade not only perjury, but swearing at all, and not only ill-speaking of neighbors, but even for anyone to say raka and fool or else, that such persons are guilty even to hellfire, and that one should not only refrain from striking, but when stricken themselves should offer the other cheek also and be so far from denying another man's ownership in things as even to refrain from demanding our own back from such as may have taken them, and so far from hurting our neighbors and doing them any evil, that even those who are ill-used should be great-hearted and practice kindness towards them and pray for them that they may repent and be saved. Now, Monsignor, did St. Irenaeus just make up this stuff? No, I don't think so. <laughs> Where did he get that? I mean, All those thoughts summarized in one paragraph. Well, here's how I'll put it in the way I read that paragraph. Um, you know, they the Gnostics have claimed, made the claim um, that they're the perfect ones. They've lived a perfect life. Um, but they've ignored so much of what the Lord taught about the practice of virtue. Um, and, you know, here they, you know, the God, the Lord has set these high standards um, for his disciples. And so the, on the one hand, you have, you have uh, those that are true disciples of the Lord, understanding that um, you, you know, it goes deep into the soul. Whereas um, the Gnostics are basically antinomians, so they don't they don't care much about the actions, and and um, Irenaeus says they obviously don't seem to care much about um, the the motives and the impulses as well, and um, and he wondered how did they miss this clear teaching of the Lord here? This 
I mean, really. That's how I read that. This is like having, I mean, the one thing that you get when you read this book and you look at the index in the back of the book, you realize that St. Irenaeus knew the Bible front and back, top to bottom. He knew it. He lived it. His arguments and use of Scripture are truly, I think, amazing. He didn't yeah. have, he didn't have, he didn't uh, have concordances. A, he didn't have, right? He, you know, he didn't have a computer. He didn't have. He, he knew this stuff. So in this paragraph, he basically summarizes the entire Sermon on the Mount. All those quotes are from some verse in the Sermon on the Mount, and he sees that what Jesus was saying to his Jewish listeners applied equally well to the Gnostics. What was the problem with the Jewish listeners? Well, they had their Pharisees that had put rules on their lives and controlled their lives, told them how to live such that um, it was more important for them to follow the rules and rituals of the Pharisees than for them to deal with their hearts. Yeah. That was the problem of the Jewish audience to which Jesus was speaking. These were all people of God. But the burdens they had imposed on them prevented, it didn't even address the fact that the problems in here, you can look great on the outside, Jesus said, right? Whitewashed tombs, he says, you know, cups on the outside. Clean the cup on the inside. It's what comes out of here that's bad, he says. So he's addressing the Jews on that very thing. Cut through the stuff and get down to what's important. And, and, and of course, the Jews, the, the, the Gnostics are separating the two. The spirit is good and the body's bad. And Jesus, it's like the same argument works for these groups, too. What you do with your body really expresses right. what's going on in here. And, and, and I, I just liked it because it's such a great summary of the Sermon on the Mount. It tells us that at this point in 175 AD, already Irenaeus is recognizing the Gospel of Matthew as canon of Scripture, even though it hasn't been declared yet. But it's the infallible foundation for him to use in his argument against uh, these, these false teachers. All right. Anything on more on that little section before we move on, Monsignor? Uh, no, I was going to just say, I mean, because section two kind of follows on that on that um, same thought, you know, that remember these Gnostics, you know, for them, salvation is all about um, the operation of the intellect. So they have a completely intellectual view of what salvation is. And he picks up in section two by reminding um, them that... Um, the Lord um, um, calls us to all these works of virtue, and they seem to have missed that point too. Um, they're arrogant to think they're able to embrace all work and um, all knowledge. He goes on, and then I love that uh, over in the next page on one ninety four, he says, um, "You know, they're they're trying to basically." embrace all they can about the experience of the soul in this life um, so that they can be perfect. But though they work all their life long, they cannot fully learn the 10th, nay, the 1,000th part 
at the top of page 194. So, um, you know, there, they're just, well, he finishes off. I thought it was wonderful at the end of that section. He finishes off by reminding the reader that um, they emulate the philosophy of, of Epicurus. You know, the Epicureans, um, Epicureanism is, is a, basically saying that the, the things that we do in the body are not that important anyway, so we can be indifferent about them. Um, they're more Epicurean than they are followers of Jesus, his yeah, argument. There. It says, yes, and while they emulate the philosophy of Epicurus and the cynic's denial of all moral differences, they boast of having Jesus for their master, who, as we have shown, withdraws his disciples not only from works, but from words too and and thoughts of evil. You know, he, our Lord calls us yeah. to, to live a holy life, so, body and soul. And the um, the next section that I have highlighted for us is a huge section here, but. It's, uh, again, a, a big one, an important one. It, it goes from 194 to 195. It's the entire section. Again, Monsignor, let me read it, if, if you don't mind. Okay. And then uh, uh -huh. you can you can yell at me if you want to stop me in the midst of reading if you have a comment, but it's because so, I'm going to read along. So you're going you're gonna, to you're gonna go into four, Aaron? Four and five. Okay. Before we leave three, could I just point out one thing right Please. in the middle of section three? Yes on page 194, yes. Um, bringing in boys as yet ungowned. I underlined that passage um, because they were, the Gnostics were recruiting um, teenage boys basically for their, for their group. Mm. And those of us that have been doing various safe um, church um, <laughs> programs and things like that, this sort of thing jumps out. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> I mean, there's something significant in what what he says there. Um, when, when the way he talks about that, it, I feel like Irenaeus is saying there's a lot more to this story than meets the eye. Yeah, I don't know if I want to open that can of worms. I hear you. In the sense that when you do read the, the histories of the Greeks and such, that yeah, you know, there was sadly abuse of boys yes by male leaders which actually there's a lot tremendous amount of documentation about that's what happened in nazi germany too but that's another story but it wasn't so much an issue of love it wasn't what we might think of today as man-to-man -man attraction it was power it was it, that's all that it was oh. it was about power and and Thoroughly demonic. Yeah. Yeah. So, sorry about that. I didn't mean well, to Well, no, no, not at all. But, but, I mean, yeah. that connects back with with what he said two yeah. pages before, that they're forerunners of that dragon being influenced by the demons and then, uh, you know, listening to the temptations and, and thinking those temptations are real and authentic and, and to not be denied. And Irenaeus keeps going back to hold on to that which is true, hold on to apostolic tradition, listen to the church. Uh, when you're being tempted in, in a way that's wrong, you got to listen to what's true. Mm -hmm. And uh, I'm, I'm glad we don't have that problem anymore today. But uh, 
Sorry, I'm being a bit facetious there, of course. But uh, okay, here's here's section four. Okay. Uh, and uh, uh, Keeble gives a title to this pair, this section: "The Church Casts Out Devils, Heals the Sick, and Has Raised Many Dead. She Gives Freely." That's what's this subtitle. Yeah. And if they will say that the Lord did such works in mere fantasy, we will refer them to the prophets and from them make it plain that all things concerning him were so foretold and so happened and that he alone is the son of God. Therefore, also in his name, those who are truly his disciples, having received the grace from him, fulfill the same for the benefit of the rest of men, according as each of them hath received the gift from him. Now, I'm going to pause there because that's a really, there's a lot of meat in that one sentence, isn't there, isn't there Monsignor? Because, in other words, the fulfillment of what the prophecy said would one day come is fulfilled in Christ. Um, in his name, passing on the grace to his disciples who then, having received it from him, fulfilled the same benefit for the rest of mankind, according to each of them having received the gift from him. So there's that gift of grace for ministry for, uh -huh. that's being passed on that Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 12 and in, in Romans, the gifts for the work of the body. For, going on, for some cast out demons, or excuse me, for some cast out devils really and truly, so that often those same persons who are purged of the evil spirits become believers, aren't in the church. Others, again, have foreknowledge of things future and visions and prophetic sayings, and others heal the sick by the imposition of their hands and restore them whole. And before now, as we have said, dead persons have been raised and have abode with us a good number of years. And what shall I say? There is no numbering the gifts which in all the world the church hath received from God. And in the name of Jesus Christ, crucified under Pontius Pilate, exercises daily for the benefit of the nations, neither deceiving any nor stripping them of their money. For as she hath freely received of God, so also she freely ministers. Going to pause there, Monsignor. I mean... Again, there he's pointing to the to the factual witness of the gifts in the church and how the through the church it's changing, really changing people's lives. And it's interesting that all of these gifts are happening in his church. So uh, I, there's not a doctrine of cessationism here. You know, the, these gifts of the spirit didn't kind of subside with the passing of the apostles from this world, even even to the point of um, raising um, people from the dead. Yeah. Um, he's, he, he cites, he obviously, he's, I assume he's writing to the bishops in his region here, um, and basically he's telling them or reminding them, you know, you already know what's going on. We, we've talked about this. Um, that there are these cases where men have been raised from the dead. So well, I just thought, I thought that was wonderful to see how he witnesses to how the apostolic gifts continue in the, in the life of the church. Um, 
people who've been exercised of demons and then became Christians. He witnessed to that reality. Yes. Second of all, as you said, people who've been raised from the dead and have abode with us a good number of years. I mean, that's fascinating. When you think about the Lazarus, you wonder how long Lazarus was hanging around after he'd been resurrected by yeah. our Lord, you know, and, and, uh, and I, they, the, the Jews wanted to kill Lazarus too, as well as Jesus. Because very, his very presence was saying something they couldn't deny. Well, that's what he's saying. That it's happening in yeah. his day. I mean, that's, that's pretty powerful. All right, I'm going to go on to the next section, section five. And, and Keeble subtitles us, By these signs she attests the truth of Christ. These can work no signs. Let me read. Nor doth she work anything by angelical invocations, nor by incantations, nor by any other evil inquisitiveness, but in cleanness and purity and openness, directing her prayers to the Lord, who made all things, invoking also the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. She works miracles for the good of men, not to beguile them. If therefore even now the name of our Lord Jesus Christ worketh benefits and cureth most substantially and truly all men everywhere believing in him, and not so the name of Simon, nor Menander, nor of uh, Carpocrates, nor of any other, it is clear that he being made man had his conversation with his own creation, that he truly wrought all things by the power of God, as seemed good to the Father of all, as the prophets foretold. But what those things were will be specified in those proofs which are taken from the prophets. I, at the name of Jesus, he emphasized twice in this paragraph. This is all done yeah. at the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And and um, unlike the Gnostics, who they work miracles, so to speak, by magic, by the magical arts, um, he says that uh, we in the church, when when we exercise these gifts, we exercise them not as a magical thing, but by prayer, and in obviously in solidarity with our Lord, um, and it's His power that works through us. So. He draws a sharp contrast between how um, Gnostics and, and Catholic Christians um, yeah. do ministry. I, I see in this a very innocent expression of, for want of a better term, non-clericalism. In other words, these mm -hmm. healings and these changed lives and these exorcisms and people rising from the dead are not me. They're Jesus. His whole emphasis here, it's not, and again, I don't want to get down on the priesthood or on the bishops, but it's not them. He's not pointing to these men who've been raised to this special position and therefore, they're the ones that are raising from the dead and healing and all that. No. 
It's the work of, in the name of Jesus Christ, through the church, this is happening. I couldn't have said it better. Well, I agree with you. Yeah, yeah. And it's just there, very innocently. He's just, he's just saying that. Yeah. Uh, so he points to the church. Uh, and he's not claiming it for himself or any other bishop. Uh, all right. The, the next section, but there's so much to go through. I think neat stuff in here. Uh, I'm going to jump, conclude two little sections. I know, Monsignor, on page 196, you want to jump in, but I'm going to hold that for just a second because I want to jump around okay. it a little bit. Because I want to, okay. in chapter 33, I want to draw our attention first to section one and then over to section five because they deal with a similar thing. Uh, they deal with this issue of transmigration. And so, Monsignor, let me read that and then, um, and then I'll. I'll, I'll I'll invite you for your commentary. So in the beginning on page 195, chapter 33, section 1. But their transmigration from body to body, we may overthrow by this circumstance, that souls remember not at all any of what was before. And then at the top of page 196, down a couple things. For the admixture of body could not entirely blot out all memory in contemplation of what they had had before, especially such being the purpose of their coming. And then before the reflection on that, I'm going to jump to page 198, section 5, where he says, Wherefore, if it re remember nothing past, but receives knowledge of things as they are here, we conclude that it is never that it never was in their bodies, never did the things which it does not even recognize, has no acquaintance with what it fails even to discern. For as each one of us receives his own body by the skill, so to call it, of God, so also also hath each his own soul. For God is not so poor and unprovided as not to have bestowed on each body its proper soul as well as its proper figure. And therefore, when the number is complete, which he hath ordained within himself, all who are enrolled for life will arise with their very own bodies, with their very own souls also, and their very own spirits, wherein they have pleased God. But those who deserve punishment will go away into the same, having also themselves their own souls and their own bodies, wherein they fell away from the grace of God. And both souls will cease from propagating any more and from being propagated, from marrying and being married, and the race of mankind, completed to the just proportion according to God's predestination, may preserve the harmony framed by the Father. Now, Monsignor, I know that I brought together a couple topics in that, but the first one is what is with this transmigration from body to body that he's alluding to? Well, um, remember, at the very beginning of our work in book one, we were looking into um, Simon, the magician. And Simon was married to a lady named Helen, 
um, who was a slave. She had been a slave woman, and he apparently bought her freedom. And and then he developed this argument. Simon argued that the Helen that he married had she was basically a goddess. And then she had passed through the lives of many historical figures, including Helen of Troy and in um, Homer. And um, and uh, so a lot of the leading Gnostics claimed they had an existence before, um, before this earthly existence. And in the case of Simon's wife, um, she was an angel basically trapped in in a body and she was destined to go from one one body to another body throughout time and um you know he's he's pointing out this is insane (laughs) and and he he has this you know i i love this passage because i've just always been fascinated with um the parts of platonism that the church has found acceptable well this is one part that it rejected at the outset this idea of the transmigration of souls. It was Plato believed that the soul was eternal. It had no beginning and it would have no end. And its place in the world was basically the world is a prison for the souls and the soul through education and contemplation can get itself out. Um, Irenaeus understands that the Christian understanding of the human person is utterly different. Everything is created by God. So um, the soul has a definite beginning in time. The soul is created. I mean, this is a real pro-life kind of a message here. The soul is created at the time the body is created. And and then, um, though the body dies, um, there is the hope of the resurrection where the body and the soul will be reunited again. Um, and so I, you know, basically if you think of, you're a, you're a great scientist, Marcus, so Plato's idea of the soul is, what's that in geometry uh, where the line goes both ways forever? Oh, um, I mean, it's infinity, but horizontal. Yeah. The horizon yeah. of infinity, yeah. Well, the Christian understanding of the soul is more like a ray. It oh, has yeah. a ray yeah. has a beginning, a definite beginning, and it can go a to vector. Infinity. A vector goes starts at a spot yeah. and goes for yeah. Right. Though he points out that um, it's not, you know, if the soul lives eternally, it's not because of its own nature, which is what Plato believed. But the the soul continues by the grace of God, its creator. So, um, so what is so it's it? a beautiful piece of um, understanding of the nature of the human person. I'm sorry. No, I was going to say, what's his main yeah. argument to prove the absurdity of this transmigration of souls? I think he has two. Okay. Um, the first one is in the section that we're dealing with now, you know, in, in uh, chapter 33. And and he's basically making a, it's a practical argument. Who but some insane person goes around talking about his life before he lived in this body? And a normal, ordinary person in, in charge of its fac- his faculties 
does not have memories of a previous life. And, and he, you know, he points this out. Um, this is the chief problem, he says, with that old Athenian Plato. Um, he can't, Plato can't answer this question, except he comes up with this cup of oblivion idea. Oh, yes, I didn't read that, that section, but you go yeah, ahead, Monsoon. That's yeah. in section two on page 196. Right. Well, every time that a soul, then Plato's idea is that every time a soul enters an, another human body, that enfleshment is kind of like drinking the cup of oblivion. So you forget everything that that goes before it. And it's just, uh, he, Irenaeus is right to make fun of that. Um, um, the, well, I'll say the, the, the second point he makes is actually in chapter 34, um, which is he, he cites the example of, of the parable of Dives and Lazarus. That, so the soul in this life doesn't have any recollection of a different life, but the souls that we see in the next life in the gospel story, they have a very vivid recollection of how they lived that one life in this world with that one body. And the story of Dives and Ladder, Lazarus is all about, um, you know, they recognize each other. That's in, um, that's in section one of, of 34. Of chapter 34, yeah. Yeah, he goes more they over. They recognize each other. And, yeah. you know, so it, it's, it's his continuing argument that there is no transmigration of souls. Um, the soul and the body have, have been brought together at their, at the, at the, both of them were created at the same time by the Lord. Yeah, it is amazing. This, I think, particularly in England, this spiritism became yeah. very big in the 19th century, particularly, right? I mean, into the 20th. That's I mean, right. You know, yeah. Did that come from them, of course, being oblivious of patristics, but but yet discovering through their study of philosophy, Plato, uh, almost seeing like this was a lost truth that they've discovered in modern day, because everything that that we see in in uh, spiritism and you know gathering around the tables and. And you know, calling on the spirits, and uh, or because someone has a you know, realizes she was a queen of Sheba herself, you know, back in the, <laughs> he, you know, he's just discounting the whole thing here. A, it's brilliant. It's just brilliant stuff, you know. Um, and I just love, I just love how he, you know, lays out that story in in. Uh, yeah. Of, of the parable of Dives and Lazarus in chapter 34, section one on page 198. That, it's just, I was just mesmerized by that as I was. Um, well, I'll, I'll read it for you this. here. He goes, Moreover, yeah. our Lord hath taught very fully that souls, besides their continuance without passing from body to body, keep likewise the very same bodily form in which they are molded, and that they remember the deeds which they have done here and from which they have ceased. In the scripture narrative of the rich man in that Lazarus who refreshed in Abraham's bosom, wherein he saith that the rich man knows Lazarus after death, and Abraham too as well, and that each one of them remains in his own station, and how he asked for Lazarus to be sent to his aid, to whom he used not to impart every 
even crumbs from his table. And concerning Abraham's answer, who was aware not only of his own condition, but also that of the rich man, and enjoined that such as would not rather come into that place of torment should assent unto Moses and the prophets, receiving also the preaching of him who rose from the dead. For hereby it was clearly declared, first, that souls continue, next, that they pass not from one body to another, also that they have the figure of a man, so as to be both known and to remember the things that are here. Likewise, that there abides in Abraham something prophetic, and that each sort of person receives its meat habitation even before the judgment. Marcus, when I was um, first ordained in the Anglican Church, I, one of my early sermons, uh, I took the parable of Dives and Lazarus, and I used it as a kind of um, a teaching point about what happens to us in the next life. Um, that we we will remember, we will have to come to to make an account of how we lived in this world, yeah. and that there are consequences. And I, what I remember is, in this in this little congregation in Oxford where I was making this sermon, I experienced my first. Um, serious pushback in the ministry from people who said, that's a horrible sermon. You're totally wrong. It has nothing to do with, um, <laughs> with the afterlife. They were all basically all, you know, in favor of, we all live happily ever after. Um, but uh, I just think this is an incredible passage that St. Irenaeus draws on. To, and it's such a beautiful example of how he uses a, a passage in the gospel um, to basically lay out as clearly as it can be laid out what what the church believes about yep. human life he and, takes its, it, and its destiny. He takes it very seriously, what what is in the gospel, the words of the gospel, yeah. the story, the parable our Lord teaches. He takes it very seriously, so seriously, he uses it, the details of it in his argument against these Gnostics. The very understanding of Lazarus and Abraham, that it takes it very seriously. Yeah. But, but as you said, you know, the Anglicans got it right. The, the Anglicans you're talking about got it right because we yeah. are just going to be happy forever and ever, and there's no big judgment <laughs> or anything. On the other hand, if they'd have read a paragraph before, he says, yeah. and, and, and this is the thing, and I'm going to read this again, that we, we kind of passed over because we were focusing on the transmigration yeah. issue. But the point is, we see in Irenaeus, not theological speculation or trying to understand for foreknowledge and predestination or all those issues. He's just purely scriptural and takes it seriously. Because he says at, in the middle of section 5 of 33, and therefore when the number is complete, which he hath foreordained within himself, all who are enrolled for life will arise with their very own bodies, with their very own souls, also with their very own spirits, wherein they have pleased God. But those who deserve punishment will go away into the same, having also themselves their own souls and their own bodies, wherein they fell away 
from the grace of God. And both sorts will cease from propagating anymore and from being propagated. You know. It, so there's not going to be, they're not coming back in some other person. <laughs> exactly. And it's whatever their eternal destiny is, it's, it's final. And it's by the will of God and by his grace. Irenaeus believed that, folks. He believed that there's a heaven and a hell, and we will be judged for what we do in this life, and we will live eternally one way or the other, either with God or apart from God. And if we're apart from God, he says, for those who deserve punishment. In other words, it isn't God that sends people to hell. It's people that send themselves there because of our choices. And that's what Irenaeus is, is asserting. All right, well, we've got one more section. There's a number of other things, but there's one last, the very last section of book two. And again, I'm going to read the whole thing, if I can read it here in the light I have in the studio. It's section four, and it's Keeble, in his subtitle, calls it the summary. And that with our sayings agrees the preaching of the apostles and the teaching of the Lord and the announcement of the prophets and that which is set, is put into our mouths by the apostles and the ministration of the Jewish cult, all of them praising one and the same God of all the Father. And not now one, now another, nor as having had substance of various gods or powers, but all are of one and the same Father, adapted, however, by him to the natures and state of the several subjects, and that neither by angels or by any other virtue, but by God the Father alone, were made things both visible and invisible, and all things whatsoever, hath been indeed, as I think, sufficiently shown hereby, many as the points are, in that we have proved that there is one God, the Father, maker of all, but that we may not be thought to shrink from that mode of proof which the scriptures of Christ furnished, although those scriptures of themselves do much more distinctly and clearly declare the same, to such as are rightly considerate, we will present a special book tracing out those scriptures. So out of the divine writings will our arguments be set within reach of all who love the truth. You know what I wrote down here um, was, um, well, the, first of all, you know, everything is now, he's, he's made this, his methodology is that everything that follows is going to be based on the Bible. Yep. So um, he's got, is very clear about where our guide is. It's in divine revelation. And that revelation is, is unified. So whether it's the Old Testament the gospel, the apostles, or the church which follows, they all speak to the same truth because they're all um, guided by the one spirit um, and they answer to the one word. I just, I was, it just, I've mentioned this before um, that in the, in Catholic theology, we make a big deal when we, when we talk about all these things that we encounter in life, various teachings and explanations of that, that we have to apply the analogy of faith yes. to that. 
And um, that is, I hadn't realized that that is literally what St. Paul says in in Romans 12, 6. The Greek words are um, analogion pisteos, the analogy of faith. So the idea of being everything that we consider and when we have to make a judgment on, everything has to be ordered to this one harmonious um, revelation, this unity of divine revelation. Um, The preaching of the apostles and the teaching of the Lord and the announcements of the prophets. Okay, now those three things, I'm, I'm thinking about 2 Thessalonians 2.15. Stand firm on the tradition that you've, been, that you've received from us, both written and oral. 2 Thessalonians 2.15. So you have this deposit that's passed on. The preaching of the apostles, the teaching of the Lord, which... Was it in the Didache or was it in the only other, you know, it talked about it being passed on. Um, there, it's here. Yeah. And it's in Aaron has to. Mm-hmm. Teaching the Lord and the announcement of the prophets. So we have the Old Testament. And then he has two more things which are interesting. That which yeah. is put into our mouths by the apostles. I would suggest that what he means by that, that which is put into our mouths by the apostles is what Cyril of Alexandria will talk about later in his catechetical instructions, is the creed, the summary. You know, Cyril says, and I think I just read yeah, it recently. Jerusalem. Cyril, yeah, he says recently that yeah. because a lot of you can't read and can't read the scriptures, and you won't be able to, we've taken... All that is most essential in Scripture that you need to know, and we've summarized it, it's been summarized, into a creed that you are to memorize. And then later, we'll explain to you more what that means. He's telling them, that, as he's getting them ready for baptism, that you will, will stop, and, and maybe you'll be able to read it in the Scriptures itself, based on the Scriptures. And he's talking about the Apostles' Creed. Yeah. And I'm assuming that's exactly what Irenaeus is talking about. That which is put into our mouths by the apostles. That's that's it. Absolutely. What about the ministration of the Jewish code? What did you make of the next? What did you, Marcus? What did you make of the next line? What's the that? Ministration of the Jewish code. Yeah, I. Uh, Ministry. I didn't. Ha- I didn't have an answer to that one. Well, I'm assuming my assumption is the Ten Commandments. Of course. Thank you. That makes sense. Well, you know the traditionally, even through Luther, yeah. it's tradition. It's always been there. You've got the Creed, the Ten Commandments, and the Our Father. You know, that's basically the the catechetical foundation. Yeah, were the three. Uh, that's what I learned as a young Lutheran when I had to be catechized. You know, it's the, the creed, the Ten Commandments, and the Our Father. I'm trying to think of what else is there. I don't even think we learned the Beatitudes as young Lutherans. But that's right. That's what. Yeah. But he, he summarizes all of them praising one and the same God of all the Father. 
And that's the main point, isn't it? That it's all of that is, it's, it comes from the one word of God, when, the Logos. And so all of divine revelation is harmoniously united. And that's why I think one of the most serious mistakes that people make is to fall into this temptation of, based on your own sort of presuppositions, to take one passage of scripture and use it against another passage of scripture. That, that is a fundamental error. Yeah. Because on the one hand, one could almost take from this if one didn't take the whole book of what Aaron is saying and say, well, he's talking about sola scriptura here, the authority of scripture, the inspiration of scripture. Later on, he said, but that we may not be thought to shrink from that mode of proof, which is the scriptures of Christ. You know, that uh, it emphasizes that. So out of the divine writings will our arguments be set, as you said earlier, that now as we get to book three, it's based on scripture. But as soon as you turn to book script, Three, and this will start now next week, he says at the bottom of page 203, uh, on behalf of the whole, the only true and life-giving faith which the church hath received from the apostles and dispenses to her sons. Now we're going to get into this whole analogy of truth, the, the rule of faith and the apostolic tradition as it's passed on. And we'll pick that up as we begin book three next week, Monsignor. Any closing thoughts before you close us with a prayer? I'm glad, Marcus, that you slowed us down a little bit. Um, it was very productive for me personally to go through this more carefully. Because most people just jump over books one and two. Which and, I did. The first time I read the whole thing, I, 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 yeah, I even I put in my book helpful. that I skipped most of book two, but I'm glad I looked at it yeah. more closely myself for the very same reasons. All right, Monson, you close us in prayer if you would. Yes, of course. Um, again, I, I, I still have a little bit of Anglican left in me, so I love this prayer from the Book of Common Prayer that I right. like to use. Almighty God, you upheld your servant Irenaeus with strength to maintain the truth against every blast of vain doctrine. Keep us, we pray, steadfast in your true religion, that in constancy and peace we may walk in the way that leads to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Amen. Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Thank you, Monsignor. And thank, uh, thank all of you for joining us on this. I hope it's been uh, in, uh, encouraging to you. And we look forward to any of your thoughts. And we encourage you to read ahead and so that when we jump into book three next week, we'll be all be on the same page. God bless you. See you next week. Yeah.